Bienvenidos, welcome, to the fifth CHS annual lecture in Hispanic Latinoa, Theology and Missions. Uh, Doctora Maria Teresa Davila is a native of Puerto Rico. MT, that's how we affectionately call her. Uh, she first came to the United States uh, for her Bachelor of Arts in Psychology at Brown University. She completed those studies in 1993. And then later she pursued her Master of Theological Studies at the Boston University School of Theology. That she completed in 1999. And then doctoral studies follow at Boston College in the area of theological ethics. The title of her dissertation, A Liberation Ethic for the One Third World, the preferential option for the poor and challenges to U.S. middle-class Christians points to MT's academic and spiritual passion to explore the intersections and contrasts between authentic Christian discipleship and the social, cultural, political, and economic context of the United States. Since the year 2008, MT has served on the faculty of Hanover Newton Theological School as Assistant Professor of Christian Ethics. And in this role, she has taught a range of topics, including introductory courses on Christian ethics, immigration and race, and the just war tradition. Today, she will be speaking to us about ecumenism. Union, or union, reunión y comunión. Union, reunion, and communion the wager of Hispanic Christians for ecumenism in the United States. One of the things I have always appreciated about MT is her ability to take seriously the U.S. context. We're talking about Latinos. I remember her from our days in the Hispanic Theological Initiative, always making that point. We're not in Latin America exactly, right? So how does one do Latino theology in the United States? And so her dissertation is an attempt to move beyond uh, Latin American liberation theology context. But today she also brings to us her creative uh, juices in the area of ecumenism. And uh, I'm very happy that you're with us, MT. Really appreciate you coming here. She just had to put a new foundation on her house because uh, she felt the house sort of moving, and that's not good. And then she's had two kids who've been sick this week and she still made it. Uh, so thank you so much for that. MT and her husband, Rob, have four children, and they are members of St. Joseph Parish in Malden, Massachusetts, where they reside. She's a Roman Catholic laywoman. We're very happy and glad to have you, MT. Please help me welcome her to our community. Good evening and thank you um, for that generous introduction. And uh, if you could please join me in a word of prayer as we begin our uh, evening together. I'd like to um, particularly pray for um, the group of young uh, musicians who presented for us here earlier and um, the weight they have to carry of ministry and evangelization in a very difficult region of the U.S.-Mexico um, relationship and tortured border. So let's, uh, let's pray together and keep them in mind. 
that God grant them strength, vision, and uh, the thrust to continue their, their very important ministry. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you so very much for an opportunity to be together tonight and to engage each other in fruitful conversation. Be present among us and send your spirit so that in this conversation, we focus on how to serve you and how to serve your people. Remind us of your wish to be one in Christ and that someday we may experience that as we come closer to seeing you and realizing your kingdom. In God's name we pray, amen. Let me begin expressing my deepest gratitude to Professor Leopoldo Sanchez and to Concordia Seminary for extending this invitation to me. When I first received the invitation to come and speak at a Lutheran seminary, on the topic of Latino theology and its intersections with ethics and Christian discipleship, I thought uh, I would do the same song and dance I usually do uh, on Latino theology in the public square and how that would help radicalize the discussion on how the Christian faith is to be lived in the public square in the U.S. today. I do that a lot. And rest assured, you will get some of that in my conclusion. However, more immediate to my heart and to my deepest desires as a Christian is the topic of the unity of the church established by Jesus, Jesus Christ. The brokenness of the Christian family has always been a source of spiritual sadness for me and a source of longing for the day in which we will all be one. And I think that the Hispanic churches in the U.S. have been blessed with particular gifts to overcome some of the divisions that infirm our fractured church. It is for me the possibility that me, we may yearn for union, engage in reunion, and practice comunion for the sake of our life together in Christ, for an increase in the number of believers, for a more faithful witness to the truth we profess. So as Professor Sanchez has indicated in his comments, this project is dear to my heart, though currently it is in its experimental Face, and I hope our conversations tonight will be more of a dialogue, a dialogo, an encuentro, rather than you thinking I'm an expert on this matter because it's really more, uh, I took this opportunity to pursue this passion rather than this being a, a fully developed idea of mine. And I hope uh, that our conversations will further promote uh, my own musings on the topic as well as inspire you to engage in possibilities you hadn't considered before. So let me begin with two stories uh, that I feel are relevant to this question and, and to my passion on this question. Quite recently, my seven-year-old daughter, her name's Destiny, and I were driving past our church on a Sunday afternoon after returning home from some errands, running some errands, and having attended mass in the morning. And I think by, because we drove by the church, she was reminded of worship that morning. And she said, Mommy, I have that song stuck in my head, and they'll know we are Christians by our love. I took that as an opening. You know, every parent does. You hear a little bit, and you say, OK, this is, I can, do, I can teach her something here. 
So I took that as an opening to explain to her what that message meant for the early Christians who would practice love and charity in ways completely different from their cultural environments, and so they were easily identified as followers of Christ. Discipleship, I told her, was considered as equal to evangelizing, spreading the message, because their witness to a life committed to loving God and neighbor was a direct witness to the salvific love of God and the proclamation of the kingdom. So to my two-minute lecture on Christology and the life of faith in the early Christian church communities, she replied, so when we are kind to other people and love them, others will know that we believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, Destiny, I replied. And I was quite taken aback by her rewording of this basic principle. Acting in kindness and love was a testament of belief in Christ not just membership in a particular community. The second story. I was fortunate enough uh, a few years back to serve as a teaching assistant to Carmelo Alvarez, a Puerto Rican Disciples of Christ um, professor of uh, mission and church history at Christian Theological Seminary in Atlanta. Uh, this was at the Hispanic Summer Program. That summer, we were in an incredibly hot campus in the mountains of Puerto Rico teaching mission and ecumenism to a group of 25 religiously diverse Latino religious leaders. Among our group was an older student from Azusa Pacific School of Theology, a white-haired Mexican hermanita who spoke no English and had a deep faith. She relied heavily on the assistance of another student from Azusa, a bright, vibrant and bright Brazilian woman. Professor Alvarez allowed me to teach the last lecture of the two-week program, and I took this opportunity to present on some work I had been developing, a feminist vision of the role of the kingdom of God in evangelization and mission. I had divided the topic into a set of principles that we classically associate with the kingdom of God and interpreted these principles in light of the contemporary world for the current work of Christian churches. My lecture was a setup, I admit it. I worked through a number of principles of inclusion and love, openness, surprise, and newness, and ended with the question of who we are asked to receive if we are to reflect the truth of the kingdom to others in the world, even if partially. I included in the group that I mentioned lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered question that a lot of our denominations are struggling with at the moment. And I asked the class what the kingdom principles I had just enumerated called our particular denominations to practice toward this group and other groups uh, often marginalized by our churches. I simply left it as a question, though my presentation should have suggested my conclusion on this topic. After the class was done, we went to chapel for our last worship of the program. At the end of the worship, when I was looking forward to going to my room, packing and leaving and going back to my husband, I heard someone sobbing, and I didn't know who they were. And it's one of those moments, and I'm sure everyone experiences this, where you're caught between actually doing what is right, which would have been to minister to this person, and actually doing what you felt like doing, which was leaving. Um, so I flashed Matthew 25 in my head and heart and headed toward the pew, where I found my hermanita from Azusa crying. I thought she was troubled about her grade, having struggled throughout the course and having communicated to me how she was unsure if she could finish the final paper for the class. 
I sat next to her and embraced her and sat still. And, and she looked at me and she said, Today I have been confronted with a truth about the God I love, and I don't know how to reconcile it with my tradition and my Pentecostal beliefs. Her comment made me feel like I had just performed an act of irresponsible theologizing for the sake of shock value. But then she proceeded, I believe that what you taught is true. I can feel it in my heart, but it is very difficult to comprehend. I was speechless. The only thing I could do, the only thing any of us can do when faced with this kind of situation, was to confirm and praise her in her faithfulness to God and that in her faithfulness, God would work the wondrous task of revealing the kingdom. Speaking about the Second Vatican Council's decree on ecumenism, theologian John Ford writes that the dynamics of participation in ecumenical efforts are worked out on the scene. Ecumenism is not simply an exercise of speculative theological investigation. It is not simply the organization of interchurch cooperation. It is not necessarily a matter of merging institutional structures. Ecumenism must involve the faith and spirituality of each Christian. And I think the two stories I mentioned speak to me about that, about the true heart of Christian discipleship and how that is our main concern. How do we follow Christ in this world? And how do we do it faithfully and authentically? We are often better served by entering our, by centering our ecumenical dialogue around conversations than around textbooks. So my following comments will center around three movements suggested by the title of this, title of this paper. Union, the articulation of a desire for Christian unity and the basic obstacles present therein. Reunion, the possibility of utilizing the metaphor of a family reunion in order to acquire some of the method method methodology that will A, enable difficult interactions around ecumenical dialogue, and B, one that will be particularly in tune with the sensibilities and complexities brought on by Latino Christianity. And three, comunión, the practicing of a discipleship guided by the unity of the Christian church, both at the social practical level or ethics and also at the theological level. The final concluding section will discuss the particular gifts and challenges of the wager of Latino Christianity as a force for ecumenical progress. This last section tries to articulate the hope that recent demographic transformation in the churches in the US can perform the function of being the key lens through which to view and structure ecumenical efforts. For most mainline denominations, Hispanic Christians are or will soon become 50% of their population. This by the year 2020 among Catholic Christians. So in Roman Catholicism in the US, by the year 2020, Latinos or Hispanic Christians, US born, will be 50% or more of the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church. And in many churches, they are the only source of measurable growth. It is therefore imperative that the ecumenical movement in the U.S. consider first the needs, challenges, and gifts of Hispanic Christians. So first movement, Union. Immediately after the Second Vatican Council and its fresh approach to other Christian churches, including the presence of observers or visitors from other denominations in the council itself, there was extensive support for Catholics to participate in ecumenical efforts. 
But as we gain more distance from the council as the decades pass, such support and the efforts that followed become varied or non-existent. One example of this phenomenon is the doctoral program at Boston College uh, in the Department of Theology where I uh, completed my doctoral studies. Immediately after the council, the Second Vatican Council, Boston College decided to open their doctoral programs in theology to the joint faculties of Catholic and Protestant seminaries in the Boston area. Many Protestant students completed their doctorate at BC, some of whom became my professors at BC, and or some of whom are current co colleagues of mine, such as Baptist theologian Mark Heim. Others who took advantage of this openness to Vatican II inspired ecumenical learning at Boston College include Elizabeth Conde Fraser, a Baptist uh, specializing on religious education, and UCC scholar Mary Luti. However, through the decades since, Protestant presence at Boston College has dwindled until finally this year the joint faculty programs were terminated. Evidently, expressed desire for Christian unity must be coupled with a continued practice and a renewal of commitment that sustains the challenges of the perennial drive for a denominational identification that seeks to define itself in negative terms over against the theologically other. Roman Catholic institutions of higher education have recently been forced to explore their Catholic identity vis-a-vis -vis their efforts at Christian ecumenism and openness to world religions. Every ecumenical conversation has the potential for the unexpected, for the surprise that no one anticipated, for customs we do not understand, for obstacles that may easily threaten ecumenical relationships. Some ecumenical conversations have attempted to avoid such topics. Within Catholicism, another challenge to ecumenical efforts, in addition to distance from the thrust of Vatican II, is the release of documents and statements that seem to backtrack on the topic of the unity of the Christian family and that are difficult to discuss with our Christian brethren. While many of these doctrinal documents are aimed at clarifying doctrinal orthodoxy for the faithful, the release in 2001 of Dominus Jesus was a painful reminder of how doctrinal clarification can derail decades of ecumenical engagement. Union, the desire for unity among the churches that profess faith in Jesus Christ, must oftentimes overcome decades and even centuries of unfriendly and even hostile relationships among the different denominations. Bishop Ricardo Ramirez of the Diocese of Las Cruces, New Mexico, considers that there is too much distance between evangelicalism, for example, and Catholics. Between these two groups, there exists a mutual distrust and suspicion grounded on the fear of proselytism and doctrinal animosity, leading to outright hostility. He surmises that, quote, there is simply no interest on the part of these groups in dialogue or collaboration with Roman Catholics, end quote. Some may argue that this assessment is extreme or even exaggerated, especially considering the one-sidedness of its assertion. However, it points to the basic animosity that is to be overcome if the desire for unity is to gain any traction at all. Bishop Ramirez admits that there is strong historically grounded anti-Protestant feelings among Hispanic Catholics. He declares that ecumenism is not part of the official plan for Hispanic ministries within the United States Catholic Church at the level of the United States Catholic Bishops Conference. So that there's an office, they have an office for uh, ecumenism and an office 
of Hispanic ministries and there's no interaction between the two. Perhaps Hispanic Catholics in the U.S. carry with them too deep a memory of the problem of the sex, el problema de las sectas, as the Latin American Catholic Church used to refer to the Protestant churches. Anyone familiar with that phraseology? So um, a, a basic uh, problematization, it was kind of a verb, they made it a problem um, when um, at the turn of the 19th to 20th century, many uh, Protestant missions started gaining ground in Latin America, and especially after World War II, um, a lot of conversation happened back and forth between Rome and Latin American bishops about the problem of the sex and the conversion of Catholics to protest Protestantism in a Catholic continent. And that problematization itself uh, is, is an ethic is both a theological and an ethical question about how do we, how do we engage the other, especially the other that holds many of the beliefs that one holds. I remember quite clearly that conversations within the Catholic Church in Puerto Rico around the question of relationships with the Protestant churches were driven by centuries-old fear of the Reformation, of a fractured church, and of often aggressive proselytizing. In mainly Catholic countries, Protestantism was problematized, something to be combated rather than an expression of Christian faith to be welcomed and or even entertained. If we are to follow John Paul II's impetus for ecumenical dialogue that, quote, to believe in Christ is to desire unity, we must overcome the excessive fear of proselytism, especially among Latino Christians, as I shall explain in a moment. It is important that we respect the fact that there exists ecumenical, ecumenically neurologic issues, those topics that when addressed will more likely than not put a stop to ecumenical progress among all parties involved, among, among them the ministry to and ministry with excluded groups. Uh, among these topics are ministry to and ministry with excluded groups, intercommunion and the Eucharist, infant baptism, and other topics. As John Ford so wisely reminds us, it is a matter of discretion to determine when and how such potentially divisive issues should be raised and discussed. Notice that he says when and how, not if. In my estimation, timidity in addressing thorny theological issues across denominations evidences a lackluster commitment to real unity that acknowledges particular differences within the universality of the church. Finally, the desire for union must accept basic differences between the grassroots ecumenical movement and the institutional movement. While the grassroots includes Pentecostal groups that may not enter the institutional conversations and who are in some ways closer to the social realities of new immigrants, the mainline denominations seem to take ecumenism for granted and their ecumenism offices have often become a bureaucratic department. I think both of these approaches, the grassroots and the ecumenical, and the institutional, excuse me, are critical for the efforts toward Christian unity, for through the differences between these two, we engage a number of dimensions that one or the other approach alone would inevitably ignore. Grassroots efforts are often the on-the-ground action groups that form to address specific issues, such as participating in efforts to assist the local immigrant community and providing resources and volunteers for the new sanctuary movement, 
addressing joblessness and offering job training, providing affordable and accessible childcare to working families, becoming involved in local legislation efforts to clean up the environment, or provide better recycling services. That's a lot of the grassroots ecumenical movement, that's local cooperation among churches, is dedicated to the more on-the-ground practical issues. By addressing the practical dailiness of discipleship, these groups communicate to each other the witness of a willingness to engage with the other for the sake of the human family, the dignity of every person, and the stewardship of the environment. Larger institutional efforts engage theological questions at national and international efforts, often achieving agreements and consensus on a number of issues. However, these are often more quiet efforts that receive little attention at the local level, and the problem is that they don't communicate, that the national and international institutional ecumenical efforts are not communicated to the local level, and the accomplishments and the logros of the local ecumenical uh, movements uh, are not communicated at a national and international level. Reunión. Thinking of ecumenism as a family reunion may help us overcome or adequately address some of the obstacles mentioned already as identifying those ecumenically neurologic issues. First, in coming together as Christians, we may find that we have much to share. There is much more that unites us than divides us. Yet, in every ecumenical gathering, there is the equivalent of the traditional dish that no one will touch. It, the, the metaphor comes from a description of ecumenism as a family reunion. And a family reunion, you go and you know, there are all these dishes that you really want to try and that your aunt makes or your cousins make, etc. And then there's that one dish that you don't touch and it shows up at every reunion, but you kind of leave it aside. In every ecumenical gathering, there is the equivalent of the traditional dish that no one will touch, beliefs and practices that are treasured by one community, but politely avoided, even absolutely rejected by other Christians. Indeed, John Ford's model of family reunion has much to offer the ecumenical movement and to Hispanic Christianity specifically. He mentions that much like in a family reunion, we may encounter a second cousin once removed or an uncle by marriage the reunion of the Christian family has utilized a number of relations to express the particular journey in the ecumenical path that a particular conversation is having. Reconciled diversities, mutual recognition of members and ministry, and this is kind of a, a nomenclature of where different conversations go. Reconciled diversities, mutual recognition of members and ministries, intercommunion agreements, altar and pulpit fellowship, churches covenanting toward unity and full communion. And, I, and this is just a sample. There's other models of churches communicating with each other toward some sort of agreement of a relationship. Each of these types is an attempt to find unity between churches in a particular historical context. Examples of these different types of relationships abound. I want to particularly point out the over 40-year conversation between Catholics and Lutherans that achieved the 1999 agreement on the doctrine of justification and the more recent efforts at Protestant understandings of the role of Mary in the life of faith of, Protestant, uh, uh, of Latino Protestants, an effort that is par partially spearheaded by Latino Lutheran 
Lutherans, such as Susan Hoferkamp Segovia. The model of family reunion is well suited for ecumenical efforts among Hispanic Christians whose religious multiple belongings is both a source of blessing and hope, but also a source of fracturedness and deep disagreements within Hispanic families. Indeed, interreligious marriages have been viewed as a complexity of Hispanic families and ministry to Hispanic families. David Maldonado, for example, treats the topic of Hispanic Protestant conversions a divisive question considering the traditional hostility between Roman Catholics and the Protestant churches in Latin America. He notes that many Latin American and Latino Protestants are faced with the blank stare or open suspicion when they reveal that they are not Catholic. Immediately the conversation turns toward the subject of proselytizing or intermarriage. Rarely, he says, do people stop to consider that there are some Latinos whose families have been members of Protestant denominations for generations. He offered, like his, himself, he is a Methodist and has been a Methodist for, his family has been Methodist for generations, but whenever he says that, he's stared at like, aren't you Catholic? You're Latino. He offers the following approach to diffusing the tensions that these conversations ultimately result in. We must ask critical questions about Protestant conversions and use this information to come to a more accurate vision of Hispanic Christianity in the U.S. Questions such as, what are the person's histories in particular traditions? How many generations have been Protestant? What stories of broken families and restored ties are part of these person's religious history? In what sense is their faithfulness a source of renewed hope in family reunion? The metaphor of family reunion among Hispanic Christians may help us address the age-old problematization of differences and obsession with doctrinal clarity. But is there a level at which the family reunion needs to first take effect within denominations themselves in the way they relay, relay to the fastest growing segment of their faithful? Daisy Machado states that Euro-American Protestantism is no longer at the center of religious life in the U.S. Therefore, dominance as an operative paradigm of these churches in the U.S. cultural milieu no longer holds. It is only when the notions of imperialism, superiority, and chosenness, which are tied to racial ideology, are finally removed from old line denominations that a liberating ecumenical church can become flesh in our country. Indeed, the challenge of the Hispanic church to mainline denominations in the U.S. is well poised to bring about a new openness to ecumenical efforts that may not have been available before. The presence of Hispanic Christians may be the measure of dissentering that Machado suggests is elementary for a possible encuentro among the Christian churches. Quote, it is urgent for Protestant mainstream churches to see their role not as one of establishment, but instead one of disestablishment, off-centered, in the margins, outside the gate. For Machado, being ecumenical in the barrio means being able to ask the hard questions about the realities where we live, not in the far-off places that are often the focus of many denominations' missionary efforts. We must ask, what does it mean to be church in a time of two wars, 
during an economic crisis that puts everyone's sense of safety and security at risk, during a time of intense movement of peoples across borders in the universal quest for life, at a time when many educational systems are failing our youth. I believe that in the ecumenical analysis of an activism toward ethical dilemmas, we work through our central denominational pillars, identifying those that give life and that liberate, as well as identifying those that shackle us, shackle us to a static notion of privilege in the religious landscape of the U.S. The former are challenged and brought to the surface in ecumenical exchanges, and in the process, in this process, we are both humbled and exalted. So the main thrust of, of my thoughts here is that in doing the practical work, uh, we don't avoid the theological questions. In fact, we begin to engage the theological questions together. Um, and that they, there's no real boundary between theology and ethics when it comes to ecumenical work. They, they have to go hand in hand. Comunión. While unión was used as a metaphor for the desire for unity among the churches, and reunión was used to establish the framework for possible actions that can be taken toward ecumenical unity, I bring up the concept of comunión as the living out of faithful discipleship guided by an ecumenical thrust. The measure of unity which has been given to the churches to experience together must now find clear manifestation. Should not our churches ask themselves whether they are showing sufficient eagerness to enter into conversation with other churches and whether they should not act together in all matters except those in which deep differences of conviction compel them to act separately? This quote from the 1952 Third World Conference on Faith and Order rings true today. It asks, have we become so complacent and so protective about our lackluster roles in contemporary society that we fail to express with urgency and conviction a deep desire for Christian unity in concrete and palpable ways. Following up on the example I mentioned, only in passing above the joint declaration by the Lutheran and Catholic churches on justification by faith, we are reminded that the road to the family reunion and the conversations that occur at the gathering is long and arduous. The conversations between the Lutheran and Catholic churches had gone for over 40 years before the declaration was confirmed in 1999. Many who began the efforts did not live to see them completed. However, the initial thrust of so many of our conversations does not need to be achieving a final agreement that may never come. Quote, agreement is not yet complete and may never be, but the results to date have been significant and certainly worth the time and effort that have gone into producing what are now multiple volumes of consensus statement, end quote. And this is from John Ford. While Comunión in the larger sense speaks of international or even global agreements on major issues, there is a sense in which a more local reflection of Comunión can be just as powerful an expression of Christian unity. For this purpose, we must ask at the local level, what are ecumenical successes and what are the challenges? These are questions as much for our churches as for our seminaries and the Theological Academy. Catholic ecumenist Jeffrey Gross asks, 
quote, how do we encourage Catholic Latino theologians to take their rightful place in the ecumenical research of the church, end quote. Puerto Rican missiologist and member of the Disciples of Christ Church, Carlos Cardoza Orlandi, suggests that Latina and Latino theologians, critical of both modern and postmodern philosophies, are articulating a relationship between contextuality and Christian truth. Indeed, our task has often been engaging the particularities of Latino Christianity in the context of the larger denominational identity. So let me conclude with a few comments on the wager and the, uh, and the risk, wager and risk of Hispanic Christians for ecumenical processes in the US. Let me conclude by pointing out a few places where Hispanic Christians can be a force for ecumenical efforts, locally, nationally, and internationally. Hispanic Christians present a wager, if you will, a risky bet that a different way of being church is possible in the US. I use the term wager because we are at a point where widespread participation in the ecumenical process cannot wait. It stands as a re as required task for every denomination, and therefore it is time to take a leap of faith with regard to the role that Hispanic Christians will play in these efforts. So first contribution, uniqueness. Hispanic Latino Christianity has a unique identity stemming from its particular development, very much the result of Encuentro. It emerges out of where all our cultures meet. In this uniqueness, we find both the practice and potential for religious multiple belonging, families that incorporate within them a multitude of denominational affiliations with various degrees of shift and flexibility, and the historical background of, quote, multiple and violent clashes of civilization. And because Hispanic Christianity is a cross-cultural reality, our unique Christian identity is based on the theological interpretations of the interpenetrations and crossings of the cultures who we are, end quote. That's from uh, Carlos Carlos Arlandi. This means that our unique identities as Christians allow, uh, allow for a blurring of cultural and ecclesial borders, those doctrinal lines that have represented deep hostilities in the past. Hispanic, Christians ide Hispanic Christian identity can tame the hostilities of these doctrinal borders since border crossing is, in fact, a unique trait of our religious formation. From an ecumenical perspective, Hispanic Latino Christian communities contribute distinctive ecclesiological features in the midst of the breakup of traditional ecclesial forms. It is important to note also that this uniqueness reflects the center of our dictate to love our neighbor. If Latino ecclesiology develops squarely in the midst of the daily struggle for life, then Latino churches should have something to say to Christian churches whose job it is to articulate what it means to tr struggle for life in the 21st century. In short, the Latino Christian perspective should be a privileged perspective among the Christian churches in the US. A second contribution, challenge to the denominations. Latino-Hispanic Christianity challenges the denominations at the core of what it means to be church in the U.S. in the 21st century. Ecumenism, like liturgy and spirituality, has to be enculturated into each community according to the gifts, needs, politics, and challenges of each. 
In this respect, Latino Christians are charged with the challenge of pointing out the places where ecumenical work among their groups is distinct from Anglo-American Christians and where it can contribute to that work. In addition, Hispanic Christians in the U.S. Academy have formed a host of organizations whose very focus is ecumenical dialogue and cooperation, such as the Academy of Catholic Hispanic Theologians in the U.S., whose very first Virgil Elizondo Award, the first time they gathered, went to a Methodist historian and ecumenist Justo Gonzalez. The Hispanic Summer Program that I mentioned pre previously, the Hispanic Theological Initiative, La Asociación para la Educación Teológica Hispana, and La Comunidad that meets every year at the AARSBL meetings and the Mexican American Cultural Center. Through these varied organizations, we have met fellow Latino scholars of theology who work diligently to cross borders across denominations, deepen and expand their own denomination's uniqueness with respect to the Latino communities, and challenge the academy to embrace the religious experience of diverse and unique groups of Hispanic Christians that defy easy identification based on outdated Anglo-American denominationalism. Third contribution, engagement with Latin American Christians. And uh, in this, I, I think specifically of that, that phrase, the problem of the sex, and I think about the violence of that phrase uh, to problematize the existence of other Christians. Uh, really does violence to the faith that moves them. And so the relationship of Latino Christian in the academy and Latino Christians in the U.S. that engage Latin American Christians can break down these hostilities, can engage different groups of Christians in Latin America constructively and fruitfully. And there are some efforts already on the way for that. Uh, but there are very deep and hurtful divisions that need to be addressed and need to be healed for progress to ensue. Family reunion. An ecumenical movement guided by Latino Christians can help in directing urgent theological and ethical topics of today. I am particularly interested in the role that an alliance of Christian churches seeking to explore the question of Christian identity and discipleship in the US today, here's where my normal song and dance comes in, uh, might be able to accomplish with respect to the struggle of the development of an authentic Christian identity in the person that can confront deep divisions of class and social stratification evident in our country. So my focus of study is, uh, in, when I have the time, <laughs> my focus of study is the development of class identity in the U.S. and the middle class identity and how elements of that ethos are contrary to Christian discipleship. And what I want to look at specifically is how is the ecclesiological question. How do churches prepare their youth, their children, and their families to develop in an authentic Christian identity that will, uh, I don't want to use a violent term, but that, that is able to, to fight, to eff effectively fight some of the elements of middle-class ethos that are contrary to Christian discipleship, such as uh, consumerism, individualism, uh, and appreciate, uh, over-appreciation for violence and sexuality, uh, 
in misplaced ways. So that is my, at the heart of my interest in ecumenism is a belief that no one church can do this alone. That every church that has tried to develop its own religious education program for the, the healthy development of Christian identity in its youth um, really fails at the task to un fully understand U.S. culture and, and, and U.S. Uh, identity development into classes and into social norms. And so I think that, that my hope for ecumenical progress is that in that we can develop together ways that we can help our families develop uh, a contrary or a contrast identity to dominant values in the U.S. that are so harmful. So what I have outlined here in the limited time we have together are some of the basic preoccupations that concern me with respect to the ecumenical movement in the U.S. and the potential for Hispanic Christian contribution to these efforts. At the heart of my comments is the desire that we come to an understanding that theological and ethical concerns are often one and the same. We can't address a particular violation of justice with other Christian groups without engaging at the same time in some of the theological heavy lifting that identifies the commonalities that our faith provides. This is the great risk that the wager of Hispanic Christianity represents for different dominations in the U.S. In the end, I am motivated by the ideal that my daughter reminds me of repeatedly. When we act with kindness and love toward others, they will know we believe in Jesus Christ. Yes, my sweet child, with all the risk this practice entails for the greater glory of God. Thank you. <laughs>